Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Amen. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Let's, let's go to God in prayer this morning. Our God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your self-revelation to us. We thank you this morning, especially that you have caused us to be born again to a living hope, that you have for us an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. And God, as I particularly feel feeble this morning, I pray that you will uh, move by your Holy Spirit, that we would have our eyes opened by your word. In the name of Jesus, I ask these things. Amen. So as I said, this is a, a single sentence, and so let's begin with the beginning here. We have had described to us the, the glory of our salvation, and as I spoke about last week, in past, present, and future, our salvation comes to us, and it's a glorious salvation, an incorruptible salvation. He says that we have been born again to a living hope. And that our hope really is this, this inheritance, this future thing that will come to us at the revelation of Jesus. This salvation that is being kept, being stored, being guarded for us for this day when Jesus returns. It's a future hope. And he says in verse 5 that we're being guarded for a salvation through faith. This, this salvation will be revealed in the last time. And then here we start in verse 6. In this you rejoice. In this salvation you rejoice. So as we begin with with this idea of hope, there's kind of two ways you can go. You can either kind of lose hope or you can almost um, what over-realize hope. You can have an over-realized eschatology, where the future things, the things that are promised for tomorrow, for the not yet, we apply them to today. So one way people do this is through like the prosperity gospel. You know, we, we see this inheritance, these riches that will be ours, and they're good things. They are our riches and our glory, and they want to apply them to today, that we will be free from suffering and free from uh, the burdens of, of financial loss. 
Or another way, there's, have you ever heard of, of the seven mountain mandate? <laughs> this idea, uh, it's, it's, it's dominion theology is what it is. And I don't remember all the seven mountains, but it's like entertainment, religion, uh, politics, all these spheres of life and these, these teachers who promote this seven mountain mandate want to have Christianity take over each one of these spheres in a dominion kind of way. And what they're doing is they're bringing their eschatology into the present. They're bringing the future into the now, and they have an over-realized eschatology. Interesting. Um, I, I, too, struggle with over-realizing my eschatology, so I brought a, an object lesson. This, this kind of represents this text to me. I made this, carved this a few weeks ago. I don't know if you can even see it. But it says in Greek, we know that when he appears, we will be like him. That's what it says. And so the reason I, I carved this and to put it on my wall in my office is because so often I, I think I've arrived. I, I want to coast. You know, I, I'll have a, some success and I'll think, oh, okay, good. Now, from here on out, I'm just going to coast. And then, of course, God smacks me across the face. And, and, re- and I realize, no, I have a lot of work to do. When he appears, I will be like him. But for now, yes. I have a lot of sanctification to go through to get there. Amen. So we, too, overrealize our eschatology. So as Paul or Peter writes this, it's almost as if when he starts to talk about hope, there's this this objector in the back of his mind that says a couple things. One, well, what about trials? You have this great hope, but what about trials? You have all these trials. How does that reconcile with this hope? Or, what about the fact that Jesus hasn't come back yet? You know, you've been waiting around for this guy to show up, and we see that in the toward the end of is that first. Peter or Second Peter, where he says there will be scoffers. I think it's Second Peter, Second Peter three. There will be scoffers who say, "Where, where, where's his arriving? He hasn't shown up yet." So it's as if Paul now is going to answer these two objections: How does hope work itself out in trials in the midst of suffering, and how does hope work itself out in waiting for Jesus to come back? So he says in verse six, and this. You rejoice, though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. This word rejoice is a rare word, especially in the New Testament. It's a, it's a more emphasized word for rejoice. In, in the Psalms, when it says, shout for joy, that's the word that is used there in the Septuagint, is this strong word for rejoicing. It's, it's an exuberant joy. And he says, this is what you should do in light of the salvation that you have, in light of the inheritance that's coming to you. Rejoice, shout for joy. Even though you're going to go through trials, you're going through trials. Notice what he says about the trials. He says, they're for a little while. Remember how Paul says that these present trials, these afflictions are, are nothing compared to the eternal weight 
of glory. Notice also he says, if necessary, if necessary, as though any trial we have is deemed necessary by God, by the providence of God. If it wasn't necessary, you wouldn't be going through it. God wouldn't be putting you through that. Every trial has a purpose. Now this this next section really uh, sticks out to me. He says, you have been grieved by various trials. So remember the, the exuberant rejoicing, this emotion, and there's another emotion, grief. Now in in these systems of over-realized eschatology, grief and sadness do not go together with rejoicing. It's like oil and water. They can't be mixed. Even in our American culture, the American dream, the American dream and success is you know, happiness. It's things you achieve. It's what you have. And that's set against trials and suffering. So what's amazing to me is that, that grief and joy. These two emotions can cohabitate. They can live in the same space, and in fact, they do live in the same space. <coughs> I was reminded studying this of uh, Kelly's Aunt Judy's funeral. You know, that's that was that's a bummer. <laughs> people dying. That's not that's not right. People always say it's part of life, you know, but it it stinks. It's part of death. Death stinks. And I, I look over at, at Katie and Caleb, her kids, and I just feel bummed out. I feel grieved by that. But there is also a sense of, of joy in the room because this woman was a, a woman of God. And as we sung hymns, and as we look to her faith, and we know where she is, there is cohabitating, rejoicing and grief in the same space. And not only can we see that, that they cohabitate, but we can also see that, in fact, the one is produced from the other. That joy can be produced from grief. That it flows out of grief. We see that in verse 7. The first reason why joy flows out of grief is that it has a purpose, that God has a purpose in it. He says, So that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes, though tested by fire. The tested genuineness of your faith. The image there is, of course, you miners probably know about, more about this than I do, but gold is tested by fire. You can test its its purity by fire, and if it's genuine gold, it will remain in its in its state. And if it's not genuine, it will be burned up. The dross will come and you clear it off. And the same is true of our faith. If our faith is genuine, the fires, the trials will come and they will produce dross, they will purify our faith, or they will show it to be false. And he says that this genuineness of faith is more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire. <coughs> That gold is the most precious <laughs> substance, you know, one of them on, on earth. It's, I'm reminded of, of what Michael spoke about during, during the offering. We have all these material things, these things we think we need, things we want. 
how much more valuable is a, is a faith that is tested as being genuine? That you know when you look back on your trials that you've lived through and you've seen your faith survive those trials, you know what's coming to you. It's more precious than gold, though tested by fire. So the first reason there why why joys is producing or trials produce joy is because of the purpose God has in it. That is to solidify our faith. And the second reason why trials produce joy is the result. He says that these things may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So it seems like he might be saying Jesus' praise, Jesus' glory, Jesus' honor here, but I think he's talking about us. I think he's saying because of your faith, a part of this inheritance that you will receive through Christ is glory. We, we tend to be very noble and say, I don't, want, I don't want any glory. But we do want glory. We want glory. We want praise. As Christians, most of the time, we don't get a lot of praise. Now I was struck by that with the, the DA speaking uh, yesterday. It's really rare for somebody to get that kind of praise for being a Christian and be in that high of a position with that much authority these days. That is a rare thing. But when Jesus comes back, we who are in him will receive praise, glory, and honor. Our faith now, by and large, especially, you know, we, we have it pretty easy, but a lot of Christians don't. They have persecution. That's the, the position these people are in, persecution. So our faith doesn't yield a lot for us right now. But it will be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And notice especially that at the revelation of Jesus Christ, it's not now. It's not an over-realized eschatology. That's what our hope is. That's our future. So the way that that kind of works itself out in application for me is to ask myself, these questions, you know, when I encounter troubles, even the most mild troubles, sometimes I just lose my head because I'm so angry that this is going poorly. I was telling somebody a story this last week about how I, I practically lost my salvation trying to fix this gasket on my, my stupid washing machine. It's because I was livid. I thought, this is totally unfair. You know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> What's the point? You know? <laughs> but it's true. I, I'll lose my head over the littlest things because I think I'm, I'm entitled to something. So I have to ask myself, you know, am I putting my hope in temporal things? Am I putting my hope in the things of now? Am I taking promises for the future and applying them to the now. And then, as a result, we get to really experience this rejoicing. Even though we're grieved by various trials, we get to experience what Paul des- or Peter describes here, a rejoicing in 
that future salvation. That's why I love that, you know, verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action, being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's our only hope. We can't put our trust in princes, in, you know, (laughs) the authority, a Christian taking a position of high authority, these type of things. We can't put our trust in those things. Now, so that's the first section there, is, is how does hope work itself out? How, does it, how is it expressed in the midst of trials? And it's expressed through a conviction that our trials are producing in us a more pure faith, that the tested genuineness of our faith will result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, the second sort of objection to our hope, uh, we kind of see this theme in, in verse th- uh, chapter 13, verse 15, you know, the great apologetics passage. Give a reason for the hope that's in you. That comes in context of suffering. It's, it's like people see, you're suffering. Why in the world do you have hope? You have a reason for that hope. So secondly here is that Jesus Jesus has not come back. It's been 2,000 years. Jesus hasn't come back. Where is he? What do we do in the meantime as we wait? Where is our hope? So he says in verse 8, Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. So I'm right, reminded here of, of good old Thomas who had to see, you know, and he saw, and Jesus said, you know, you, you believe, but blessed are those who believe without seeing. And I think of, of Peter here. I, I don't know if we often think this way, but but he walked with Jesus. He lived with Jesus. He saw Jesus for three years. And I just kind of imagine, you know, Jesus saying, I'm, I'm going to leave you. And how upsetting that would be to Peter. But how how real his hope is that he will see him again and that he gets to commune with him in love and faith even now. But even we who 2,000 years later, Gentiles, have never seen him, we, we love him. We exercise our love and our obedience to him. Jesus is the most glorious person to us because of the blessings he brought us through the cross and resurrection. Through this resurrection hope, we love him. And we believe in him. You know, John John is really good about this. He says in at the end of John, I write all this stuff so that you believe. He's telling everybody, you know, believe. All these miracles, all the things that Jesus said is so that you would believe, you people who didn't get to walk with him. Or at the beginning of 1 John, all that we've seen and heard and touched, we proclaim to you. So even we who have not seen may believe. Not only do we we believe, but we again rejoice with joy inexpressible and filled with glory. So joy, joy itself can't be squashed by trials, nor can it be squashed by the fact that we wait for Jesus to return, that our inheritance is not now, but it's future, 
that doesn't do anything to squash my joy because it's guaranteed. Finally, he says, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So there's a sense in which this, this salvation of your souls that he speaks of as future is already ours, that we obtain it, we hold on to it. By faith, we attain our salvation that's yet to come. So I, I feel like I've been pretty brief here, but I hope that this has been helpful. And I hope that if, if nothing else you get out of this, that our hope, this living hope he says we've been born unto is not a subjective hope that is dependent on, on earthly things or on having a present you know, inheritance, but that it's, hope is an objective and not a contingent thing for us. That's all I have for you for today, and I pray that it will be a blessing to you. Amen. Amen.